Hi everyone, Luke here. Edie's Sustainability Uncovered podcast is hosted in partnership with Lloyds Bank. We're delighted to have Lloyds Bank involved as they support UK business in the transition to a more sustainable future. Businesses of all sizes have the chance to power and accelerate this transition and seize the huge opportunities presented by it. Lloyds Bank works with clients not only to help finance this transition, but also to understand the challenges they face and the business prospects they look to capitalise on. To find out more, search Lloyds Bank Sustainability. Lending is subject to status. Hello and welcome to the ED podcast broadcast in partnership with Lloyds Bank. It's the cold and frosty week ending Friday 16th of December and this is Sustainability Uncovered, the show for anyone and everyone working in or passionate about sustainability and climate action. Coming up in today's show, Lloyds Bank's Director of Sustainability reflects on a whirlwind couple of weeks for biodiversity with the crucial COP15 meeting taking place in Montreal. The energy here at COP15 is really considerable and the sort of level of people here, the seniority, I think biodiversity is definitely moving up from being the poor relation to really being seen as something we need to tackle. We catch up with the country manager from the responsible business trailblazer that is Patagonia, who stresses the importance of going local with your sustainability strategy. Being as part of a larger company, there are many initiatives which we take on board which are on a bigger scale. Many of them we have local activations which helps around staff, it helps around engagement in community, it helps around collaborating with people that are making a difference and it will make a direct impact to your bottom line and to any net zero carbon emissions goals and challenges. And we sit down with the executive board member of climate charity Just Dig It, who are on a mission to re-green Africa and cool down the planet. In the last century, we've seen that many European, North American and other Western organizations with the best intentions have gone to Africa trying to impose solutions made up in a drawing board in London, Amsterdam or New York. We really believe that that doesn't work. Local ownership is key. What we try to do is support them with communication, with funding, with technology, with science, with everything they need to upscale their existing programs. Plus, we'll be reflecting on the biggest sustainability stories of 2022. Matt and I go head to head in the Big Fat Sustainability Quiz of the Year. And Sarah will be gifting us with some top tips to have yourself a sustainable Christmas. All of that and more in this week's episode of Sustainability Uncovered. So yes, hello and welcome along. Welcome back to Sustainability Uncovered. You're listening once again to ED's content director, Luke Nichols, and we're back for a Christmas special, I suppose this is. So we'll be bringing you some of the most uh, inspiring and exciting sustainability climate action stories from across the globe uh, with a festive twist, of course. So I'm sat once again in ED's own version of Santa's Grotto. Um, the podcast studio here. It really is like the North Pole outside though because we've had a good six inches of snow. It was minus four degrees when I commuted into the offices this morning. So it's fair to say I'm feeling a little bit festive um, and Christmas has really come early because I'm reunited once again with uh, the dasher and dancer of sustainable business that are Edie's content editor Matt Mace and senior reporter Sarah George. Matt, how are you doing? Yeah, not so bad. I'm glad you didn't call me Rudolph. I thought I'd have a bit of a red nose from all the cold <laughs> but uh, evidently that stayed off so... Yeah, not bad. Getting in the festive spirit. Yeah, how's the back? Yeah, it's a full recovery. I actually went for a run before the snow came, um, and I was like, great, I can start running again. But now the snow's out, I can't run, because obviously we grit the roads, but we don't grit the paths. So yeah, It's been a year of excuses, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, pretty much, pretty much. Is that a Christmas jumper you're wearing? People keep asking this, no. It is a sustainability-themed jumper. I think it's T-Mill, so shout-out to okay. T-Mill, who we know quite oh, well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's uh, about deforestation. The, the caption is, jungle was massive, but it does look like I've got a load of Christmas trees on my jumper. It does, yeah. Yeah. Uh, great. Well, um, yeah, always on brand. Should us. be Jungle Bells. Jungle oh, Bells. Yeah. There you go. It's the first yeah. one. Um, plenty more of that to come on this episode of Sustainability Uncovered. Now that segues us nicely into yourself, Sarah. Hello. Merry Christmas. Are you feeling equally festive? Um, slightly, although obviously do not have the tea mill um, festive jumper. I was also thinking that in addition to my quizzes, you should make How's the Back um, feature. <laughs> it seems to be the first thing. Um, you ask Matt. Yeah, get that on the jumper. <laughs> <laughs> Christmas jumper day is next week, isn't it? Next mm-hmm. Tuesday. We're off. Are you off on holiday? I'm off. I'm going to wear my actual Christmas jumper to our uh, company meeting on Thursday. Oh, yeah. It's a very okay, good one. Great. Dinosaur themed. Nice. Okay. Yeah. So, the comp- yeah, we've got company meeting on Thursday, company party on Friday, mm. Christmas jumper day on Tuesday. You'll be in the office wearing a jumper, won't you, Sarah? I will. I think these guys are off um, next week, meaning that it will just be me manning the desk for for the last few working days that we have um, 
of this year and it's actually a busier December than most with the biodiversity COP15 as you've already mentioned um, Luke and also the EU just keeps coming out with more and more green policy so yeah, it has been. Um, this is the week, though. It does feel like that everyone's finally starting to wind down, or is it just me? Um, but mistletoe and wind down, you could say. Yeah. <laughs> oh, here we go. Um, but yeah, I guess it's been, a, as you say, Sarah, it's been another monumental year for us here at ED and, and for the world of sustainability and climate action more generally. But 2022 is not over yet. In fact, we're in the middle of arguably, as you say, one of the most crucial parts of the year because COP15, the Biodiversity Conference, is still taking place as we speak in Montreal. So this is a summit which is running from the 7th to the 19th of December. Uh, governments are essentially meeting out in Canada to agree targets to reverse the loss of nature. And I suppose in a similar way to the COP27 climate summit, focusing on 1.5 degrees, COP15 does appear to have found its own North Star, uh, which is to officially protect uh, 30% of land and sea by 2030. So are they proving successful, these talks? What role can businesses play in uh, adapting the way we rely upon the planet for food, for clean air, for water? Matt, I'm turning to you. Thankfully, you're not going to be answering those questions, but I saw uh, in the office earlier you've been having a virtual chat um, about this very topic with our first guest. Is that right? Yes. Earlier on today, I grabbed some time with Lloyds Bank, who's also our podcast partner. They have sent their uh, sustainability lead um, out to Montreal. Um, I, spoke to, I spoke to her in the early hours of Montreal time, that lunchtime hour time. So um, much appreciate the time that I managed to get with uh, Rebecca Heaton to discuss all things uh, COP15 and also a bit more about their own approach to biodiversity and how that also ties in with the net zero movement as well. Great stuff. Okay, so uh, let's get straight into it then. So here's Matt's chat from, well, sort of live, a half hour ago, live from Montreal with Lloyds Bank's Director of Environmental Sustainability, Dr. Rebecca Heaton, in full. By the time you're listening to this, COP15 will be spilling over into its final hours and with a bit of luck may even have concluded with a new global deal for nature. There's been lots of talk about how negotiations on the ground have dragged on as we try to do this new 30 by 30 agreement. Uh, but we're going to hear from someone who, um, well, at the time of this recording, is midway through attending the summit in Montreal. Um, we discussed um, before recording that um, there's been a few uh, side events and discussions that she's been able to take part of, but, but is yet to kind of get into the crux of Finance Day, which will be on uh, the Wednesday, which in weird podcast terms, you would have already passed. That's the joy of being a podcast. So, um, Joining me now is Dr. Rebecca Heaton, who is Director of Environmental Sustainability at Lloyds Bank. So, Rebecca, thank you so much for joining me. Um, I know it's kind of the early hours of the morning over there in Montreal. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Good morning, Matt. Brilliant. And um, I suppose before we jump into to COP15 um, and, and why it is that, that, that you're out there, uh, for, our, for our listeners, it'd be great just to get a bit of a background about what your role is at Lloyds Bank. Obviously, Director of Environmental Sustainability. What, what's kind of a... Uh, you probably don't have a day-to-day, -day, I think it's probably very different each day, but what, what's the kind of your remit there? So I joined the bank um, earlier on this year, and, and as you say, Director of Environmental Sustainability. So my role is really all about helping the bank deliver on our net zero targets and ambitions. It's also about developing the strategy a bit further as well. So how can our climate strategy really align with our bank's purpose, which is helping Britain prosper? I'm also working with all the business units to really integrate sustainability outcomes into the work that we do with our clients. And also, most importantly, looking at capturing some of the growth opportunities of the low carbon transition. That then, well, it doesn't actually bring me nicely onto COP15 because um, it, it, we, we see a lot with our audience that sometimes net zero and, and, and biodiversity, which of course is what COP15 is about, can be kind of treated separately. Uh, but I know some businesses do kind of see the, the interrelations there. So in terms of, of COP15, what, why is it that you've decided to uh, to travel out to Montreal for that? And, and why do you think that that, um, that summit, which I believe it's been described in the press by the, the most important summit that people have never heard of, why, why do you think it's an important summit? So I've always been passionate about nature and biodiversity. I'm a forester by training and I started my career off very much in the land use sector, where, of course, I think we're really aware of the impacts of what we do on nature. And at Lloyd's, we also recognise that taking action to restore nature and protect biodiversity is crucial in helping these, the twin crises of climate change and biodiversity. They're really the two sides of the same coin. 
And at Lloyd's, we're the UK's largest agricultural lender. So we've got both a responsibility and a strong interest in making sure that we protect and enhance nature and biodiversity as we support our clients to transition to net zero. I worry that sometimes we can have climate tunnel vision and only look at climate outcomes. And sometimes those are um, contrary to nature outcomes. So it's really important to looking at, at them both in tandem. So um, I'm really excited to be here this week in Montreal. I've been to various climate cops in the past, but I haven't been to, a, to one of the biodiversity ones. So I'm hoping that the wider discussions will help elevate the importance of biodiversity and how important it is to integrate it into climate change. I'm also hoping that it will create a plan of action so that the public and private sector can tackle the dual crises of nature and climate change effectively. And on a personal level, I'm really looking forward to learning a lot more about this emerging area, particularly in terms of how we can measure and disclose and talk about it. Yeah, the uh, the measure and disclosure aspect is crucial. And um, I really like what you said there about that sometimes having that kind of almost that climate and carbon tunnel vision. And um, you mentioned COP27, and we were hoping that, that, you know, the final text there would reference the discussions that are now taking place at COP15. But that was eventually excluded from the final text, which is a bit of a letdown because you've already touched on the kind of interconnections between biodiversity and climate action. How, how important do you think it is that governments and businesses start to realise um, those interconnections and, and act on them um, in unison? I mean, it's absolutely essential. Um, I think we really need governments to create an enabling environment to tackle nature, some really clear policy actions aimed at halting and re reversing biodiversity loss and to really integrate that into their climate policies as well. Um, I would say, yes, it's a shame that we don't have that um, link with COP27, but the energy here at COP15 is really considerable. Um, and the sort of level of people here, the seniority, I think I think biodiversity is definitely moving up from being the poor relation to really being seen as something we need to tackle. Brilliant. And as I um, kind of discussed on the intro to this, we're hoping that there's a big agreement off the back of this. Obviously, COP15 has faced numerous delays um, across multiple years for various reasons. And I suppose for the, the sustainability, uh, the corporate sustainability uh, movement, how, you know, whatever is agreed or not agreed, how do you see that impacting corporate sustainability moving forward? I think it's really important for us to take a responsibility as a financial institution, regardless of what comes out of the more formal negotiations. And there's quite a lot of financial institutions here um, and lots of the, the reporting and disclosure type organisations. So I think it's really important for us as a bank to support a nature positive agenda and work with our clients on this. And also, I think what's important is for businesses to start measuring and managing their impact on nature. And I think the task force for nature related financial disclosures can really help us to do this. So it's almost regardless of what's happening upstairs in the negotiations, businesses and financial institutions are standing ready and starting to tackle this. Now, that's a that's a great point. Um, and I think it'd be remiss not to quickly touch on during this podcast chat about Lloyds Bank's only own approach to, to biodiversity, because you, you've touched on it very briefly. But what kind of programmes and, and targets uh, do you have in place for that? So I, I arrived in the bank earlier on this year and I've inherited and, and since I've been here, we've launched some, some great initiatives. And I'm also really looking forward to spending the next 12 months or so really refining our approach on nature. So as I've said, we're the largest lender to the agricultural sector in the UK. And we've been providing farming loans and finance for over 90 years. So we're really actively working with rural businesses to help them with their net zero journeys. So first of all, around training and information. So all of our agricultural relationship managers have received sustainability training through um, the University of Cambridge's Institute for Sustainability, actually. So these are our farm relationship managers who really understand the farms which they work with. And they're out there with their wellies on in the fields, looking at what farmers can do and helping farmers to understand their journey to net zero and, and to, to, to negating biodiversity loss. Um, we've also... Um, and that's a really ex exciting new initiative called the Soil Association Exchange. We're working with the Soil Association um, to help British farmers accelerate their transition to net zero by understanding and improving the ecological footprint. So 
what we're doing is going out on farms and measuring various parameters because measuring is the really biggest challenge for nature it's not like carbon where there's just one number nature you know how do you how do you assess nature and what sorts of the aggregated set of metrics that you might want to use so what we're doing is this trial um, across some of our farmers looking at soil carbon soil health carbon emissions, hedgerow length, um, tree coverage, water quality, biodiversity, so measuring numbers of insects, etc., animal health, and also the social and community impacts on the farm. And this will really help us establish a baseline that we can then work on and say, right, how as an individual farm can you improve this? What might you do to try and improve your biodiversity and climate outcomes? That's um that's brilliant to hear, uh, Rebecca, the, the trials and the initiatives that you've got going on there. It sounds like um you're taking a real kind of leadership position in this space, and I'm very excited to see what uh what results and, and um announcements you'll be able to bring from that. And I'm I'm wary obviously it's it's early out there in Montreal, so I don't want to keep you for too much longer. So my final question is what would a successful COP fifteen look like for you? So I think absolutely a clear plan of action on biodiversity between now and 2030, that that would be the ideal outcome. But then in terms of, of for the bank, it's for me all about understanding some of the future expected trends and also just talking to people, forming networks and partnerships and working out who we can work with on this. We're all tackling the same challenge of how can we measure this? What do those metrics look like? How can we be confident that we're really going to be delivering change? And so for me, there's just this fantastic learning and relationship building opportunity out here. I'd also finally hope that the world might sit up and take more notice as well. So we always have a big buzz around climate cops. We have to be having the same focus and attention from the world on biodiversity. Yeah, that's that's a very good point there. Um, yeah, uh, even 27 uh, has created a, a massive amount of buzz. And obviously Glasgow last year, even more so. But yeah, COP, uh, the biodiversity cops do tend to be much more kind of quieter affair, at least from a media reporting point of view. And we're, we're certainly trying to change that. And that's why it's been great to be able to, to speak to you uh, today, Rebecca, um, out there on, on the grounds and, and getting ready to kind of, I suppose, um, sink your teeth into the into the crux of the, 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 the events as they happen. And, you know, I know you're incredibly busy, so I won't keep you any longer. But um, Dr. Rebecca Eden, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. A pleasure, Matt. Thank you. Yes, thank you very much to Dr. Rebecca Heaton there and indeed to, to Lloyds Bank, Edie's podcast partner. Let's keep the momentum going then for this episode. We're going to move straight into our next interview segment. It follows on quite nicely, I think, um, because who better to feature on an, an end-of-year special than the business which sparked Edie's most read article of the whole of 2022. It's not Brewdog, I should say, uh, although that recent B Corp dropout story did get a lot of hits, but uh, it is in fact Patagonia, the outdoor clothing brand, which I think many people would regard as the most responsible business in the world now, um, certainly appear top of many rankings, including our own surveying. And they really solidified that, that title, I think, a few months ago when they made that earth-shattering announcement to effectively give away the $3 billion company and transform its ownership to a specially designed trust and a non-profit organisation, both of which are focused on combating climate change and protecting biodiversity around the globe. And as I say, the story topped the charts on ED this year, racking up more views than Mariah Carey. I don't think we've done much on Mariah Carey, to be fair. More listens, more views. Uh, You can check that story out, uh, not the Mariah Carey one, the ED Patagonia one, by Googling Patagonia ED. Um, Did so earlier, it's top of the list. Uh, And anyway, um, last month I was fortunate enough to be invited along to COP27, uh, to a COP27 event, I should say, uh, in London, which was organised by the great people at Seismic. They're the change agency, which I should say is helping ED and our publisher with our own B Corp accreditation. Uh, And the event was aptly titled, Less Talk, More Action. Uh, And it was there that I caught up with one of the panellists from the session, Alex Beasley, who is Patagonia's country manager for the UK, Ireland and Nordics. And Alex and I had a fascinating chat about that move to sell off the company in in that way, but also about the wider benefits that being a a responsible business can bring and his advice for other organisations looking to follow suit. So really enjoy this one. Let's get into that chat I had with Patagonia's Alex Beasley in full. 
Okay, yes, uh, here I am then at the X and Y headquarters. Fascinating discussion, fascinating environment we're in. They're just packing down around us now. There's lots of people having drinks behind us. The title of the panel discussion was Less Chat, More Action, uh, referring, of course, to the COP27 climate talks, but also perhaps more broadly to the current state of sustainability and, and climate action. I'm delighted to say that I'm, I'm joined here by a, a genuine leader on sustainability and climate action in the form of outdoor clothing brand Patagonia, uh, because with me now is one of the panellists from the discussion here earlier, Patagonia's country manager for the UK, Ireland and the Nordics, Alex Beasley. Alex, hello. Nice to meet you, Luke. It's nice to see you. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Um, yeah, so perhaps you could just begin by giving us a flavour of, of what's just been discussed here this evening. We just said it was a rather emotional end to the conversation, um, but I'd be interested to hear what your kind of key takeaways were from the discussion about kind of less chat, more action. I think the interesting thing, and if my team were listening to this, I love to start with the end in mind. And the end in mind for me were three things, the words that came up from the word cloud, which is directly taken from the responses from the audience, which were listen, radical and activism. And I think if you think about those three words and actually the agency that those three words create, the responsibility and the accountability that those three words create, it's quite an interesting, it's a great response actually from the discussions that we had as a panel, I felt. And actually it just shows that there really is a need and a drive and an understanding, understanding that business as usual is done and that we really do need a change. Yeah, I think that's the energy we can feel in the room, right? And that was when I mentioned it became quite emotional earlier is there's this sort of sense of energy around the people here, a lot of them representing businesses of all shapes and sizes and the general consensus now that this idea of less chat and more action is it's quite real in a way that I don't think it has been uh, in previous years, certainly at previous COPs. Um, on the subject of COP, um, this episode of Sustainability Uncovered is actually going to go out a few weeks after COP27. Um, but tell us if and how Patagonia has participated in the, in the talks so far and what have you taken from them in terms of this level of um, business involvement? Uh, we haven't actually participated in COP uh, this year. Uh, we did in Paris uh, quite actively. There's no real reason for that outside of the fact that normal business takes, unfortunately, there's lots of other things to actually go at. But I think for us internally, there's the continuous dialogue around um, the relevance of COP. And that's not to say it's not. It continues to be highly relevant. The challenge that COP has is how does it not lose its action? How does it not lose its agency on creating the change that we need to see? It's easy for us to actually look at it and say that there's a part of it which is greenwashed, but we have to accept that it's the only opportunity that we've got to hold governments for the G20 accountable by featuring voices from the global south, underrepresented um, populations, underrepresented groups, underrepresented people to be able to give them a voice. And that's why COP's really important and that's why it should actually be looked at to say we do need this and we need to do more of it and we've got to find a way to keep supporting it. Well, Patagonia is a business that's doing a lot more of it in regards to sort of walking the walk on sustainability. You're a, a real leader and that was encapsulated, I guess, a couple of months ago when uh, your founder made that groundbreaking announcement to effectively give away, um, as it's been quoted, the, the $3 billion company and, and transfer its ownership to a specifically designed trust and a non-profit organization, both of which are uh, focused on combating climate change and, and protecting undeveloped land around the world. Alex, tell us um, what's happened since that announcement there in the sustainability team. You said earlier in, in the panel, everything's changed, but nothing's changed. So what's actually, how, how have things changed, if at all, over the last couple of months since that announcement? Um, I think the honest answer there is, I'll go back to the statement that I said, the honest answer is everything has changed, but nothing has changed. There's the reason why we split into two trusts. The first trust is the Patagonia Purpose Trust. That enshrines the whole body of the company. Everything from selling products, our supply chain, our 1% for the planet commitments remain, our B Corp status remains, um, the home planet fund that we set up, they're all part of the Patagonia Purpose Trust. There's an element of profit which is taken out from the proceeds of that, which then looks after that part of the company, but every, everything else then goes to the whole fast collective, which is purely dedicated to protecting um, and combating the climate crisis that we're currently in. So what's changed, to try and answer your question? There's a big part where we're actually looking at ways for us to be able to keep doing things locally. We know that being as part of a, a larger company, that 
There are many initiatives which we take on board which are on a bigger scale. I could name things like Bears Ears, I could name things like uh, Save the Blue Heart of Europe, I could name things like We The Power, I could name Artificial, all those big campaigns that we've done. But many of them we have local activations in order to be able to try and make a change to create a difference. And to give you one clear example where we source our energy from is any, any Agamemnon Arturo and his amazing group in Energy Garden. They feature as part of We The Power, we source our energy direct from them and then we um, pay a premium on top of that in order to be able to support the local communities that provide the power in order to be able to give people an opportunity to learn new skills to try and make a difference in their lives. Yeah, this sort of local and, and more broadly this kind of profit but not for profit kind of model, if you like, is sort of seen and referred to as a bit of an alternative, I guess, to the capitalist for-profit um, exclusively model. But I guess that's certainly not to say that the approach, um, this approach to corporate sustainability isn't itself kind of financially beneficial and sustainable to the company and its stakeholders. And there are two aspects to this point that I'm making that I wanted to kind of get your views on. One is from a kind of consumer perspective. Does, does creating products that are inherently more sustainable, longer lasting, which Patagonia is quite famed for, um, do these products sort of sell better than products that perhaps aren't? That's to say, do you see sustainable products as more profitable ones or is that not the right way to look at it? I don't think that's the right way to look at it. I actually think there's a really important word I need to pick you up on. It's the word sustainable. Um, we're not a sustainable company. Uh, definitely if you look at the UN definition of sustainability, then um, every business is not sustainable at the moment. Uh, we prefer to think of ourselves as a responsible company because responsible has three key words in it. Uh, one of them is around the agency that it creates. The second one is around the accountability that it has. And the third one is around transparency. And you pull all those three words together around our how we make our products, how much product we make, how we manage growth, who we say yes to and who we say no to, all these things come together. So does responsibly sourced and responsibly made product that has a social aspect to it, does that product sell? Then the answer to that is yes. Is that the reason why we're doing it? Then the answer to that is yes, but only to a point because it's not like we want to fuel growth, we want to be responsible and measured with any growth that we take, but we also want to provide people with an alternative to be able to buy product from a company that spent a lot of time working really closely with its partners over many decades to improve supply chain, improve accountability, improve the responsible nature of how that's made, where it's made, who makes it, how they benefit from it, so that people can buy something with with an understanding that all this effort's gone into the product and that we're transparent about it so people can actually make an informed choice on when they're ready to buy, not for the sake of buying. Really good point. And the, the second aspect I wanted to discuss then from this was, uh, I guess, on the employee and, and staff recruitment and, and retention front as well. Do, do you see a, a clear link between your leadership on sustainability, responsibility and, and, and your climate activism and your staff recruitment and, and retention levels? Uh, the un honest answer to that is yes. Um, I think it's really, really clear and really important um, that for all of us that work for the company, you have a really clear link to our mission. Um, we're in business to save our home planet, right? It's really important from um, a self-actualization perspective, from an agency perspective, that you feel you're contributing towards that. And it does mean that you feel like you're working for a company that isn't just in the pursuit of profit, even before the announcement that we just made. Now everything that we're doing, every, every cent that we're making in profit is going back into contributing to a cause to fight the climate crisis that we find ourselves in. So does that have a bearing on um, how people activate, engage with the company? Yes, it does. Does it mean that we've got uh, opportunities to retain people long, for longer? Yes, it does. But that's just about those of us that are here. Does it help in recruitment? Absolutely it does. And the reason it does is because more and more people want to feel like they've got a career and they're working for a company that gives a shit, that cares, that wants to make a difference, is willing to acknowledge its uh, mistakes and its shortcomings as well as the things that it's doing well and is working really hard to try and improve those things. And the honest answer, and I think you knew it already, Luke, to be honest, is yeah, of course it does. 
good. It's good to get affirmation. But that's the outcome, right? That's not the reason that we're doing these things. That's the outcome of all of that work. And I think that's what gives it credibility. We're not doing it just because of that. That's the outcome of doing everything that that we're doing right. We do that because it's the right thing to do. And we hope that we recruit, employ, retain like-minded people. One final theme I wanted to kind of pick up with you, it's my penultimate question actually, but this was around the, the one of the key themes of this episode of Sustainability Uncovered, which is um, biodiversity. We're going to be airing this episode around the time of the COP15 um, biodiversity conference. I wanted to get your view on this because Patagonia again is a company that's seen as having a really seeing and realizing the strong link between business and the environment and nature and biodiversity. What do you think needs to happen to kind of bridge that gap um, between businesses and the impacts of business and nature, the natural environment and biodiversity? Because at the moment it feels like a topic that people are starting to realize just how important it is but candidly it's not feeling like the dial is moving on biodiversity and, and nature restoration enough. No, yeah, you make a good point. I'm glad you reminded me about that. I think the, uh, for us, the key thing around combating the climate crisis is nature already is a natural solution. And one of the ways that we can help combat the climate crisis is by protecting and looking after the wild spaces that we have left. Making sure we're able to look after them protect them so that they're not used and abused, destroyed, that they're there to protect and for future generations as part of a climate solution, but also to make sure that other generations can actually enjoy them in the way that those of us are a little bit older and a little bit grey can actually and have done and have benefited from. I also think it's really important that we don't lose sight of the fact that nature is already a solution to the climate crisis that we're in and protecting it naturally helps offset the challenges that we're already facing. The more companies, the more organisations that help NGOs, organisations that are combating climate crisis by protecting those, these areas, then the more benefit that will come from that. Great point. And um, so just a point to end on then, we're sat here at the, almost at the close of this, this panel discussion, as I say earlier, was decided, it was titled Less Chat, More Action, which I think provides a nice basis for us to close off. Because I wanted to find out from your perspective, Alex, what, when we talk about more action, what's that kind of one action you would like to see more businesses outside of Patagonia necessarily to be taking now off the back of COP27, now that we know the state of the crisis we're in, what's the one thing you would like to see happening at a business level that actually is showing that more action needs to start happening? Okay. Really simple answer to that. If you look at the campaign that we're running at the moment around We The Power, it's around uh, community energy and how community energy can actually provide two things. It can provide energy, which is uh, carbon zero, because it's invariably it's solar panels and or wind turbines, but also it can support the community that generates that electricity away from large conglomerates and actually help the community feel that they've got an opportunity to contribute to part of the solution. Businesses can source their energy directly from community energy projects through Europe. In the UK, it's more challenging, but it is available, it is there. I would encourage anybody, switch your supplier at the right time, because obviously at the moment it's quite challenging, but engage in discussions with your energy supplier and find out if you can buy your energy from community energy schemes. Because not only will that help towards your net zero goals, it will also help you find ways to be able to support local communities to your organisation and your company, which helps around staff, it helps around engagement in community, it helps around collaborating with people that are making a difference. You'll learn an awful lot and it will make a direct impact to your bottom line and to any net cut net zero carbon emissions uh, goals and challenges that you've won. Alex, uh, it's a fantastic note to end on. Uh, I love that point. Um, thanks so much for your time. It's always fascinating to speak to, to Patagonia. I look forward to seeing what, what more action looks like for your organisation um, over the coming months. So thanks a lot. Hopefully we haven't missed out on the drinks. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Yes, thanks to Alex for that inspiring chat and also to the guys at Seismic for helping to arrange that. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I need to escape this uh, grotto for a moment and get some fresh air. Uh, so let's take a short break, Matt. Let's give you time to go out and... Snowball fight.
I was going to say build a snowman outside of Edie's offices, but yeah, you could start a snowball fight. But uh, Edie's listeners, uh, don't go anywhere because when we return, we'll be chatting uh, with a climate action charity, which is on a mission to supercharge biodiversity and cool down our planet. Plus, Sarah's going to be turning up the festive vibes with some sustainable Christmas tips uh, and the thing we've all been waiting for, the big fat sustainability quiz of the year. You are listening to Sustainability Uncovered, brought to you in partnership with Lloyds Bank. The ED team are delighted to have partnered with Lloyds Bank for this podcast series as they support UK business in the transition to a more sustainable future. Businesses of all sizes have the chance to power and accelerate this transition and seize the huge opportunities presented by it. Lloyds Bank works with clients not only to help finance this transition, but also to understand the challenges they face and the business prospects they look to capitalise on. To find out more, search Lloyds Bank Sustainability. Lending is subject to status. Welcome back to Sustainability Uncovered. I am joined here still in the studio by Edie's very own Donna and Blitzen, Matt Mace and Sarah George. Favourite Christmas song, Matt? I had a feeling you were about to ask me, actually. Like, the one that sprang into my head straight away was the hippopotamus one, but I don't like it. The hippopotamus it's one? It's like, I want a hippopotamus for Christmas. <laughs> and it's like this, like... Midwestern American girl singing it, but right. I do say I really like driving home for Christmas, but only when I'm actually driving home right, for Christmas. Okay. Like something about being in the car and driving through like the snow, yeah, the which happens very rarely, car, yeah. it does kind of resonate with me. But if it just comes on the radio at home, I'm like, I'm not driving home on here. Yeah. So well, for your sake, we might cut the, the hippopotamus line out of this. I, I, mean, I, I covered it pretty well. That's a good rendition. <laughs> uh, Sarah. Yeah, whether I'm in the car or at home, I am an Elton John fan of heart, so it has to be staying uh, into Christmas. Yeah, well, yeah that is a good shout. Jingle Bell Rock, of course, I just because it's... You it's mean girl, <laughs> <laughs> My reference was more about getting the cardboard cut out, cut out, out and uh, get it on the strings and pretend that I've sort of got a full house party going mm. on. <laughs> I hope people get that reference. Um, anyway, speaking of Christmas music, I have been digging around for some royalty-free jingles. Um, it's the kind of thing I do in my spare time for us to play for this um, next very quick segment because, Sarah, we had a bit of an idea. Talk us through it. Um, yeah, the idea was we're a business-to-business title, but a lot of business um, like magazines that you pick up um, will be providing you tips on how to have the best Christmas, um, you know, how, mm. to, how to dust your tinsel, curl your ribbons, save your wrapping paper, um, and also tips on having a sustainable Christmas. So the idea is to run through some very quick tips for having a sustainable Christmas um, to music, and I think that Luke's going to time me yes hoping that i can um do it justice <laughs> yeah well you know me i'm i'm one to take these kind of segments seriously because i've managed to find some background music which is exactly two minutes long so sarah get ready to give us your rundown mm-hmm. of how to have a sustainable little christmas while i prepare this on my phone is this going to be a, a wrap i hope or <laughs> <laughs> i haven't had time to prepare um, let me just get megan lee stallion online i'm sure she can wrap it for us instead all right okay sarah three two one Yes, so many of us are already planning to reduce the impact of our celebrations, although cost is probably likely the driving factor rather than the environmental factor for most of us. Um, Drapers estimates that almost 60% of us will be spending less on Christmas this year than last year. So some sustainable and cost-saving options include giving second-hand books, you can look in charity shops and on retailers like eBay and CEX for these, giving homemade goods, edible goods always welcome, or giving time or experiences instead. Simply not buying things that will get thrown away it is the best way to have a sustainable Christmas. We generate 30% more rubbish as a nation during the season than the rest of the year. Other ways to save costs and carbon include celebrating together in a big group, only using the food you need and using up your leftovers, using reusable wrapping paper and gift bags and reusing your decorations year on year. Do I have any time left? You have many time. You have about 20 20 seconds left. Excellent. Um, Regarding Christmas trees, the real debate is reusable or plastic. The Carbon Trust has calculated that using a real tree then properly managing it after use has a life cycle carbon footprint of 3.5 kilograms. But artificial trees have a footprint of up to 40 kilograms. So you need to uh, reuse it about 12 times. So however you choose to celebrate this festive season, we hope you have yourself a sustainable little Christmas. Very good. Almost bang on. Almost. Um, many round of applause for Sarah. 
Well done. Well, it was very yeah. impressive, yeah. It was actually, yeah, as much as I intended that to just be a bit of a laugh, I think it was generally pretty useful. So, uh, thank I'm you. I'm sure it was odd. I genuinely <laughs> wish I'd heard it before I'd done all my Christmas shopping. <laughs> so I was like, oh, yeah, yeah one is true. Although I did, I think I, the last time I did an experience Christmas where we just bought each other oh, yeah. like, things to go do was just before the pandemic, so we didn't get to do them because we were stuck inside for about two years. So. Mm, yeah. If I'm a little late, maybe apply this to your next winter birthday or to, or to next Christmas. Yeah. Good shout. Right, okay, let's uh, get us back on track and uh, bring listeners the final interview of the show. And Sarah, we're sticking with you, and I think I'll make you do the legwork again with this one. Can you find a subtle way of segueing us from sustainable tips into this next chat that you had? Yeah, so I was talking about Christmas trees. Um, well, how about Africa's native trees would be <laughs> nice. my segue. Um, I was lucky enough to get some time in the diary um, earlier this month with the Just Dig It um, team, and you've already introduced them well. Um, Just Dig It says that its ultimate mission is to help supercharge biodiversity, working closely with local farmers in Africa on re-greening. And we talk about exactly what re-greening is in this interview with Vessel Van Eden, who is executive board member um, at Just Dig It. Yeah, so he's on hand to talk us through what exactly regreening is and how it can be delivered effectively, which ties in nicely with um, yeah, a very biodiversity-heavy December. Mm, yeah, I must admit, I hadn't heard of Just Dig It prior to this pod, but having looked at what they do and heard that, it sounds fascinating. So uh, really interested to hear this one. Let's play that chat, Sarah's chat, with their executive board member, Vessel Van Eden, in full. Yes, great to be learning a bit more about re-greening um, for this next part of the podcast. So, Vessel, thank you very much for taking the time to dial in from, did you say it's Amsterdam that you're dialing in from today? Yeah, hi, Sarah. So glad to be here. I'm, I'm currently based uh, in Amsterdam, yes. Great. Well, great to have you have you calling in. Um, and I know we probably have just introduced Just Dig It a little bit um, in the studio, but it'd be great to hear a little bit about um, the organisation from from your side of things. So, were you there from the sort of beginning of of Just Dig It? Yeah, almost. I'm the longest standing Just Dig It um, uh, person right now because uh, the people who founded it uh, all went their own ways. One of them unfortunately passed away six years ago, and uh, our other co-founder left like a little over a year ago. But um, I was there, I'm there for a little over nine years. And the organization has been officially founded a little over 10 years ago. So um, I can say, see, safely say I was there almost from the beginning. Got it. And it'd be great to hear a little bit about how how it came to, to be. Like what what need did you guys see for creating Just Dig It? Well, I think the um, previous the co-founder, Dennis Carpers and myself and also our current managing director were involved in a project called Dance for Life, which was a HIV AIDS awareness project founded in 2003 which was very much also trying to take um, a rather doom and gloomish topic like HIV and AIDS and really try to create a positive storytelling driven music communication approach around a well difficult topic to make it more relevant to young people. Um, we did that for over eight years, learned a lot, um, had over 1.5 million kids go to our educational program. So I think that was where the foundation was laid for the approach that we take, which is Dig It. Um, as I said, at the time, um, uh, HIV-AIDS was the number one topic threatening um, all of us, but we are very convinced that uh, climate change, land degradation and drought are currently the number one topic we should all be very worried about. However, um, yeah, we believe that people are fed up with all the doom and gloom and the powers that be destroying the planet. So what can you do as an individual? Um, so Just Dig It is all about restoring ecosystems at large, and uh, that is potentially 37% of the solution to mitigating global warming, but also positively impacting food security, water availability, it helps for livelihoods, mig uh, migration, it's basically the holy grail of solutions um, when you look at the problems we're facing. So. We do that in Africa with uh, a very strong communication approach, working with amazing local grassroots organizations, restoring ecosystems at large. We began in Kenya, um, where we started with the half moons, which just think it is mostly known for. So we, together with Maasai communities, we dug over 250,000 half moon shaped water buns, or as I like to call them, earth smiles. And what these do is they allow rainwater to infiltrate into the soil uh, where they previously couldn't and thereby automatically regreening enormous plots of um, degraded land. Um, and from there on, we expanded into Tanzania together, working together with uh, the LEED Foundation, an amazing grassroots partner out of the Doma, um, with whom together we have regenerated over 12 million trees in the past five years. 
using a very strong uh, technique that is focused at smallhold farmers, so subsistence farmers, people who live off their land. Basically, it's a technique to regrow trees that were once cut down and to combine these with your crops. So, for example, sorghum or mice are big crops that you see uh, traditionally around those areas. So by showing farmers that um, by combining trees with crops, they can enormously increase their crop yields, thereby improve their livelihoods. It's a very scalable technique because you don't actually need to pay the farmer to, uh, to, to do the intervention, so to speak. And besides that, our third mission is um, to raise awareness. We focus on Europe now, Europe and Africa, about the potential of nature-based solutions. Because like we said at the beginning, 37% of the solution lies in restoring nature. It's one of the most low-tech, scalable and affordable solutions there is, even though currently less than 5% of the climate-related funding goes to these kind of solutions. So that's also where we see a role to give hope to people that solutions exist, but also to convince uh, brands and governments and institutions to direct more funding towards these kind of solutions. Of course, and we've we've just had COP27, which has some of those aims and so many of the things that you mentioned actually had yeah themes on there. So solutions was great to see a whole day on solutions, biodiversity and food. So I'm sure we can come back and look at um, at that in a bit more detail. But I wanted to just ask a quick question about language here. We have a lot of um, readers that that focus on things like reforestation, afforestation, regeneration, restoration. Um, but you guys talk about regreening. So yes. what makes regreening different to all of those other terms? What exactly is regreening? It's a very good question, Sarah. Now, what we try to do is to make things understandable for a larger audience, so not just for the people who have studied the nature conservancy or stuff like that. So regreening is for us a contain container for all of those. So FLR, FMNR, reforestation, afforestation, planting, um, regeneration, and all these, uh, these words that come along. But we believe regreening, it was not an official word. Um, it kind of is becoming one right now, but it's basically to regreen areas where previously green used to exist, but which have degraded over the, the course of the last 50 to 100 years. That makes sense. And then probably something else that we get asked by listeners is we want to do this, but we want to make sure we put the right solutions in the right places. We've all heard of cases where non-native trees go in or where the wrong kind of mangroves um, go in. So it'd be great to hear about how you come up with an effective approach to regreening um, in Africa. And as we've seen coming out of COP, there are some real challenges facing changing weather patterns and changing environment and land use in some of these regions that you mentioned. No, very good question. I was actually at COP. I did a few presentations there, so I was fully into the whole discussion that's going on, especially focused around Africa. But to start with the indigenous species, so what we do is to regrow trees that were once cut down. So they are, per definition, the indigenous species. Uh, a lot of wrong species of trees have been planted over the course of the last years, in uh, especially ac across Africa. For example, eucalyptus, which is a very successful tree, but takes a lot of water out of the system. Um, so we only work with indigenous species, um, uh, the grasses that we use for our grassy banks. Uh, so basically what we try to do is to dead uh, seeds and that are still present in the, in the soil to let them grow um, automatically or trees that were once cut down to grow them back using this um, tree recovery FMNR technique, uh, which I was just speaking about. So we never ever plant any trees, so no new species are in, introduced by us at any time. That all makes sense. And something else you mentioned that was important was working with stakeholder groups on, on the ground, not just coming in and putting in a solution without finding out who's there and what they're already up to and what, um, what they need. So it'd be great to hear sort of your learnings from working with local stakeholders and working with them, as you say, internationally, because right now you're hundreds of miles away from them. Yeah, very good question, because it's super important. I think in the last century, we've seen that many European, North American and other Western organizations with the best intentions have gone to Africa with trying to impose solutions made up in a drawing board in London, Amsterdam or New York. Um, we really believe that that doesn't work. And local ownership is key to any uh, NGO work, we believe but also working with grassroots organizations that are already uh, active in the communities. We try to be the wind under their wings, as we say. We try to be very invisible ourselves, um, but to let the, the local people be the, the owners and the heroes of their project. What we try to do is support them with communication, with funding, with technology, with science, with everything they need to upscale their existing programs. But in the end, it's them speaking out on, on behalf of, of, the, of their own communities. So it's really important that um, uh, once we, we leave, 
uh, if we leave, we have a 20-year sustainability plan. I think every NGO should have the mission to make itself uh, disappear at some point in time again, because that's proof of your work is actually resonating and owned by the local communities. So, for example, in Tanzania, working with the LEED Foundation, which is run by the former Archbishop uh, of Tanzania, um, and his uh, family, they started a small foundation, and uh, in the five, past five years that we work with them, we have been able to help them grow their organization from, from four people to now maybe 40 people. Not that that is a goal in itself, but it goes to show that the impact is, is over 12 million trees. Um, it's really uh, powerful and it makes them proud. It's a locally owned, locally led initiative. Of course, we are co-branded in it. People know just that it exists. But it's not the big, um, uh, well, Muzungu show, if you will, the word for white people in uh, in East Africa. So we try to to be as invisible as possible, but really to support through our, you know, connections, funding, expertise, etc. So locally, local ownership is key for any intervention that you do. In uh, well, I can only speak on 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 the African context, but I think that's a key key learning that um, we have taken from, uh, well, I say the last century that. That is, is for any sustainable project, a starting point. Love that. Love the idea of, yeah, to make it self-sufficient after a time and not to just come in for a period of time because nature-based solutions aren't like that, right? It's a long-term solution. Yeah, you, you'd be amazed at how quick you can restore nature. The first effects can be seen literally after the first rain event. But of course, something we took um, a few hundred years to destroy, we cannot uh, bring back within uh, three years. So therefore, the local ownership is key. And what I'm really excited about is the potential of 350 million smallholder farmers across Sub-Saharan Africa. More and more of these people have internet connected phones or smart feature phones. We have a network of media partners who support us completely pro bono across from the most rural radio stations to billboard companies, um, big TV broadcasters, influencer marketing agencies. And our big theory of change is that if you have simple techniques which require no investment, if the 65% of these farmers is connected by the year 2025, why would we go from program to program? Why not go directly to the farmer using a free of data mobile app that we are currently developing? which would then propagate techniques that will economically improve the lives of the farmers. And in doing so, it would be not even an NGO approach anymore. It would just be, you know, adding value to farmers' lives through using mobile technology and storytelling and communication. And um, verification of impact can be done through GPS uh, data and satellite data. So you would completely disrupt the NGO model by scaling up at, for, at a fraction of the cost, but way more locally owned and locally led, because if a farmer makes more money, he or she will protect that benefit with their lives. So I think that's a very sustainable way to not only empower local communities, but in the big picture, if you have 350 million small farmers, let's say they all restore 40 trees on their land. Well, you do the math. Then we're seriously talking about carbon sequestration in a whole new level, which in the end benefits all of us because we live in a closed system. Got it. And I did want to bring it back to COP. And you've mentioned so many things that were talked about COP, digital technologies, um, farming, theory of change, solutions, biodiversity, food systems. Um, so it'd be great to hear about what you made of this COP. Obviously, we saw that these things had dedicated space on, on the agenda, but what was the atmosphere like? And do you think that was properly reflected in, in what was agreed? Well, I, I always have a bit of a hate-love hate relationship with uh, events like the COP because, A, all the private jets flying to Egypt and, you know, there was a limited possibility for protests and stuff like that, which I think is... Well, not an open platform where all opinions can be heard. But in all honesty, I was a bit skeptical, and especially when it looked like there was not going to be an agreement. But I'm actually pretty happy with the agreement that came out. Of course, it could always be better. But at least with the help of um, a lot of countries and the EU, so I'm, I'm a proud European right now, um, that, you know, at least there is a, 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 pay, a payment plan now for, for the countries hardest affected who have least contributed to the effects of climate change. I think that's a big breakthrough. And the 1.5 degrees is still alive, even though on paper and a lot of actions have to put be, have to be put behind the words. But there was a big speculation going on at the COP that, you know, the 1.5 degrees was not maintainable anymore. So I'm for one super happy that, that um, some yeah, some guts were shown, some leadership was shown to keep that at least, well, let's say on paper alive. Uh, we have to see the actions to back it up, but at least that's what they agreed upon. And second of all, I was I was amazed by the energy of all the different NGOs, indigenous rights groups, people, media houses, speakers. It was 
It's a really rewarding event, and I think the topics that you just mentioned, um, there seems to be more and more alignment on, you know, we know the problems, we know the solutions, so how can we translate it into concrete action? So I came away pretty hopeful, um, but also because the Just Dig It story just really resonates well with a lot of people because it's a kind of new approach to scale up um, at a level that would actually make sense. So, um, yeah, I'm more leaning towards the positive than the negative, I would say. Great. I think like it is good to lean towards the positives, especially given that by the time this episode airs, we'll probably be in the middle of biodiversity um, COP15. It's very much that we can't um, rest on our laurels after the two weeks that um, we've just had in Egypt. Um, so, Vesso, I hope you're looking forward to that too. And I know you must be busy. Um, so I'll let you get going. And thank you very much for popping on the podcast and letting everyone know a little bit more about Just Dig It this month. Thank you so much, Sarah. It was my pleasure to be here. And um, well, uh, to close it off, I think the Biodiversity COP and the Normal COP should be integrated because there's no use in seeing this as two different topics. It's all related. So, uh, yeah, thanks for um, having me talk a bit about Just Dig It and our mission to cool down the planet. Thank you to Vessel and best of luck to Just Dig It with that great mission of theirs. Uh, right, we're now almost through this uh, bumper festive special episode of Sustainability Uncovered, um, but we really are the gift that keeps on giving because we're closing out with that fan favourite that is Edie's Big Fat Quiz of the Year. Um, do you think we have fans, Matt? Yeah, of course you do. Yeah. Edie, cool. Edie, Edieholics probably isn't the right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, lights. Yeah, so yeah, the the ED lights among you will remember all too well that I wiped the floor with Matt in our inaugural quiz back in October. Mm. Um, then feeling bad for him and, and wanting to build up some tension, I then voluntarily conceded our second COP-themed quiz in November, uh, which brings us to December, the mm. decider, the Rocky versus Apollo. I feel like we need some like mood lights, mood lights to come down. And yeah. dun, 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 dun. Well, we've got some TV lights in here. Yeah, yeah. should get Let's those going. Um, so Sarah, tell us what we've got planned for us. Um, so Edialites, as you call them, will know that every year on our website we run a big fat quiz of the year, um, quizzing readers on some of the biggest sustainability um, and climate action stories from the year prior. That will still be going this month, um, but I've got a sort of mini version of that um, for you guys, taking five questions from five of our most read stories, um, as well as a bonus Christmas question as a decider if needed. Mm. I, I have a feeling we won't need a decider because I, I know who, who actually pulled out these top ten stories to begin with, so I know he's got the advantage here, but I'll, I'll leave that to, to our but reader's did discretion. He, did he read them? Yeah, they're two, two them? very different questions. <laughs> two very different questions. Okay, uh, let's get going. Mm-hmm. Great, so our first question we're going to start with the UK's TCFD mandate. The UK has this year become the first major country to mandate TCFD-aligned disclosures from large businesses. But in what month was that mandate brought in? I should mention this should probably be fingers on buzzers. Mm-hmm. They're not all numerical. What, what, what will I first pen to say it? Yeah. Buzz. April. Oh. <laughs> 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 I was buzzing in to say April. <laughs> Would we both say April? I would have said April. Yeah, yes. we'll, we'll be honest and say it all yeah. at the same time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's me writing down the It's a good job that I am extra questions. So right. we're not we're not buzzing, we're just shouting out the answer. I just so I'm aware for future questions. Right. Let's just go with shouting out. Yeah, although <laughs> okay. as much as I enjoyed buzz. I hope one of the answers is buzz. Although this one's actually numerical, so I'll be happy to take closest number. Right, okay, this one's fine. Um, moving swiftly on to our second question. The UK government's net zero strategy was ruled to be unlawful by the High Court this summer. One of the reasons was a failure to outline job creation in line with the national 2030 green jobs target. How many green jobs is the UK government wanting to host by 2030? 400,000. I would have said 60,000. It's two million, which means that Matt's technically closer. <laughs> that means that he gets the point. I think I was thinking of a report about job growth rather than the actual target. I think so. The thing is that when you add the jobs that already exist to those detailed in the strategy, it adds up to around 400,000. Uh, okay. But that's not even a quarter of what we need. Uh, um, the point does go to Matt on that one. Yes. Um, we're staying in summer. In August, the Competition and Markets Authority here in the UK launched an in-depth look at potential greenwashing claims made by businesses in their marketing and their labelling. But what products did it start with? Claims. Fashion. Yeah, yeah. fashion. It's, it's first to say. It's you can't just, to you say. can't just parrot me with an echo. It's first to say it. Luke, your technique worked well at the beginning, but now right. you're... Okay. <laughs> 
Um, great, moving on to our next question, something we've already mentioned on this pod, um, Patagonia. Um, the business that made a major change to its business model, creating two new entities to hold stock and allocate all profits not really invested to environmental causes. But in what month did Yvonne announce that move? September. Um, let me just check in my, ma- in my mind. I think it was, yeah, I would have said September as well. I've gone in early. I don't think it's October. It's, it's September. Oh, it's that was cor- correct. Oh, I keep forgetting about the buzz thing. Through <laughs> <laughs> me. Okay, cool. Um, so it looks like Matt's run away with this, to be, uh, to yes, be honest. This, this Can we have like bonus points for this Christmas? This is a, this is a whitewash make Christmas. It worth, make it worth three. There's one that has a bonus point, but it's not the Christmas question. So okay. I'll go to the Christmas question and then to the news question with a bonus point. Hmm. Christmas question, and I mentioned this in my uh, two-minute <laughs> sustainable Christmas feature. By what percentage does the UK's generation and disposal of rubbish increase? 30. That's correct. <sighs> <laughs> Luke's just sighing deeply. Um, do you want the final question? Of course we want the final of question. Of course you do. Um, and the final question is, London Mayor Sadiq Khan recently confirmed that London's ULEZ will be expanded to cover all of Greater London next year. But when was the first bit of the ULEZ first launched? 2017. No. 19. One point. Month? April. March. Luke got the month, Matt got the year, <laughs> <laughs> so it's sort of like one point each. If all else fails, I just jump in and shout eight for everyone. <laughs> so at the end of that, I'm going to say that Luke has two points, one for the draw and one for that. Matt has one point for the draw, plus a further one, two, three, four yeah, points of his right. own, yeah. making him our Christmas champion. Nice of you to let me win that one as well, Luke, yeah, very kind of you. Yeah, no worries. Yeah. We'll continue to be doing that throughout 2023. <laughs> um, <laughs> Great, well done, congratulations, Matt. Right, on that note, uh, I think that is just about a wrap. Um, that's my last Christmas pun of the year. And the end of this episode. Uh, Sarah, you want to tease us up with what's coming up in the next episode of the pod? Sure, so we will be back bigger and better than ever in the new year. Um, and in January, we'll be running a themed week of content on engagement and communications around sustainability. So you can expect a bumper special of this podcast. Um, with interviews covering marketing, labelling, greenwashing, staff engagement and all that jazz. Hmm. Great stuff. look forward to pulling together with you guys. Yeah, lots Mm. to stay tuned for. So I must say a huge thanks to all of our podcast guests who featured in this episode of Sustainability Uncovered. Thanks to you guys, Sarah, Matt, it's been emotional. Um, Have a great break. Uh, Special thanks to our podcast partner, Lloyds Bank. Merry Christmas, everyone. So uh, until next year, it's uh, goodbye from Matt. Goodbye. Goodbye from Sarah. Goodbye. And it's a goodbye and a Merry Christmas from me. Goodbye.